you're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. chapter 2, starting in verse 11, we're going to continue on our series called Inherit. And this, uh, this installment, this sermon, um, is, is actually a very, very important one um, because it follows kind of a natural arc, a normal modality of what Paul does in all of his letters, um, and that is that he, he takes what kind of began as a me story uh, and kind of then at the, the end of Ephesians 2 pulls us into a we story. Um, in other words, that there are things that we've been learning about, such as um, learning about inheriting adoption and sonship, inheriting uh, resurrection power, inheriting forgiveness, um, inheriting, like last week, um, we talked about inheriting the life in Jesus. There are things that we have as individuals, uh, sons and daughters of God, that we inherit just by name, by way of being part of his family. But, uh, but all of the stories that happen in Galatians or, or, or even Corinthians or Thessalonians or any of these other letters that Paul writes, he doesn't stop at writing to the individual in that particular church that's saying, this is about you, this is a me story. He kind of leads us on this arc that shows that everything that we're inherited as individuals, as sons and daughters, is meant to be given and blessed into families and into churches. So there's a, a, a me inheritance, but every me inheritance is not unto itself. It's meant to be given, shared, um, participated with, served, uh, led, all of these things within the context of a we um, story. And so um, I think it's just really cool that the Lord has really set us up um, for um, speaking to us through the scripture today because it really topically, I think, meets us where we're at. Um, I know that when we, when we had to make the announcement, if you're new here, we recently kind of had to make an announcement about leadership transition here at the church. When we had to make that announcement, it was just really provisional of the Lord to be talking about us right in the passage that we chose months and months ago on that particular day about the power, the authority, and the headship of Christ. That he provides for us a scripture even in that moment, right? Are you seeing what I'm saying? Is that in a time when we are looking at transition and fluctuation and we're concerned about who, you know, what's the future look like, he, he girds us and he gives us confidence in his scriptures because the scriptures are speaking, they're alive and well, they're speaking to us every single day. And that scripture on that particular day is talking about I'm the Lordship of Christ. And so as things transition, I'm not transitioning, I'm never changing. And furthermore, it's a two-for-one sale, I guess, because on the very day that not only we do want to talk about city groups, but I just got done, we were leading a meeting with a membership, and we were talking about family and how significant family is and how significant what God does in the context of family that he puts us right at the end of Ephesians 2, talking about family. I mean, I was going to go out in Scripture and go pull out Acts chapter 2 or go pull out some other verse as though I needed to go shop for something to go talk about, but God's saying, I'm already talking about what you're talking about. I'm already providing for what you're doing. Like, you're not leading this thing. You're actually not even helping this thing. You're just following in my wake. And so we come and open the Bible and we realize that his word, although it's written thousands of years ago, is written to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, and Paul begins to talk about this, this concept of family to these two different groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. So I'll start by saying this, that... Um, my life, my coming of age, my growing up is kind of different because I'm half Asian and half American. My dad's about five foot eight, looks like a bulldog. He's, he's bald. He went to the same high school as, as Bruce Lee, coincidentally. Um, that's not just a racist joke. It truly is the truth. And, um, and I, I'm half Asian. But the other thing about that is I'm, I'm also half American. My mom's German-Irish. Uh, she's blonde. 
she went to Catholic school. They both uh, met in Indiana, but she went to kind of like, she lived in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where Sam Hirschberger's from. Only good people come from Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so I'm kind of a, a mutt. I'm kind of a, a mixture of two different races and, uh, and had a very different experience because of that. Like my summers, for example, I didn't do Little League baseball. Um, during the summers, I like went to Hong Kong because it was so lame that I had to spend my summers in Hong Kong going traveling, blah, blah, blah. I couldn't play, play Little League baseball, but I was like, you know, had its advantages because I would go there and everybody would kind of give me their money and I would take a whole entire empty suitcase and then I'd bring it back with a bunch of fake polos and DVDs and black market goods and hand them out to my friends when I got home. So that has these advantages, right? One of the advantages of, of being Asian is people will kind of stereotype you in good ways, you know, like teachers will give you the benefit of the doubt. Like you'll not hand in your homework and they'll be like, I guess I lost it because, you know, clearly, clearly handed it in, you know. Um, I don't fit into a lot of those stereotypes, but some of those things can, can play in your favor, you know. Um, I wasn't particularly the first picked on the basketball team, typically, before Jeremy Lin and Lin Sanity and Yao Ming. It was kind of like few and far between that you'd have like an Asian basketball player. So I'd usually be kind of picked last. But that's kind of a, a good thing because then they don't expect anything of you and you can like get guarded by somebody that you can uh, hopefully cross up a little bit. And... Uh, and, and in some ways, it, it meant kind of disconnection from friendship and not really being involved just because of, of race, especially in an earlier era, you know, in, in, uh, in Indiana, let's say, where that wasn't exactly known of how to engage with, you know, multicultural, multi-ethnic, you know, people. I mean, I actually had a, a, a young girl that I dated kind of early on in high school, and I had found out, I don't know how much of this is just rumor mill or true or whatever, but like when they found out my last name, the dad like wouldn't let her date me. So it was just like kind of this, this, this interesting path and that, that I kind of walked on as a young man growing up. And I learned um, that, that being different, although it can be harder, it can be something um, really, really special and really, really powerful about your story that you can carry with you. But we're all outsiders to some degree. We all struggle to fit in. We all um, can feel like we're kind of like looking at the party through the window that we're not invited to the party. I mean, I can talk about my race and ethnicity, but all of us have different things that make up our cultural background, our story, different things about our body type, our, our height, or, or whatever it is, the way we talk, our personality. Not, none of us are insiders all the time. Like at some point, some of us are outsiders. At some point, all of us are outsiders to something. I mean, we can't belong to everyone and everywhere. And so to, to some degree, we have to contend with this issue of what it means to be an outsider. Um, to be an outsider typically means that you don't have um, really access to decisions. A lot of times decisions, if you're an outsider in a group, outsider in a business, or outsider in a family, the decision will get made without you, and it'll sort of either get passed by you, or the worst case scenario is you sort of just find out the decision after the fact, like some other outsider has to tell you that. Some of you guys have felt the pain of this, of somebody dying in your family, and you didn't know from somebody in your family, you actually found out from Facebook, because you're an outsider in your family. And you were thought last in terms of decision-making and information. A lot of times, outsiders um, don't get invitation quite as regularly. That it's kind of an afterthought. Like if you're an outsider in a group, some of you guys can feel this. Some of you guys can feel this in church. Some of you guys can feel this in family. This feeling that, um, that kind of the party isn't happening unless other people are at it. Like, like if, if it's just you, then the party really isn't there because the party has to have people A, B, and C and not people X, Y, and Z. And so because you're an X, Y, and Z person and you're not an A, B, and C person, the party's not happening until the, a, B, the, until the other people get there, until the insiders get there, until the cool people get there, until the leaders get there, until whoever gets there. And so you're an outsider in an insider's world. 
So Paul is preaching to this group of Galatians, uh, excuse me, of Ephesians, these, these, these Gentiles, these people that were outside of the faith. And what happened is, is in Acts chapter 19, you can go back and read about it, that Paul went into this place called Ephesus, which is a fairly secular mercantile area, very, very rich, but also a really hot spot for religious kind of um, uh, activity. There was Roman gods and Greek gods and temples. There were some temples that were so large, like, like this god called Diana, which is a Roman god, that they gave so much money to this temple that they were actually able to support nations off of the mon- money and the funds that are flowing through this temple. Very hodgepodge, very pluralistic, and actually probably very relevant to who we are and where we are in America. Very racially and ethnically diverse, lots of different backgrounds, not only shapes and sizes and colors, but deep belief systems are very different, hard to find unity, hard to find clarity, hard to find truth. And so uh, Paul comes in there and it says, much like he does in much of his other missional activities, finds you know, the temple of the day, the Jewish temple, preaches at the temple for about three months, and the Lord just endows him and, and, and allows him to, to act in, in, in lots of power, see lots of healing, see lots of miracles, see lots of prophecy, that sort of thing. So the kingdom of heaven begins to ripen, and what you have is not only um, are the Jews in that temple converted, but there are lots of Gentiles as well, meaning non-Jewish, non-ethnically, don't know who Abraham is from Sam, don't, aren't circumcised, don't have kosher meals, you know, eat shrimp and crabs and, and all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the Jewish diet. And so you have these outsiders who are now brought in just as much as these insiders, and there's an ethnic division that comes out of it. So, for example, if you're a Jewish person and you abide by the 600 laws in the Old Covenant about how to marry, how to bury, how to live, how to walk, how to breathe, how to eat, how to sleep, and now you're supposed to be sitting in the pew next to this other person who has none of that background, how are you supposed to trust that when your wife sits next to one of their men, that their men are going to speak to your wife the way that's socially appropriate? How are you expected as you go to work next to this person, you're not supposed to call this person a brother, although ethnically and socially and everything else, politically, they're completely different. How are you going to expect that they're going to pull their weight in the working team? How are you going to know that, um, that they're, going to, uh, they're going to pull their, their part to earn their keep? These are some of the tensions, the ethnic tensions that they face, and it's not unlike the ethnic and racial tensions and socioeconomic tensions that we face today in our churches. It's said that actually the church is the most divided hour in America. It's a time when the classes separate, the races separate. It's a time when backgrounds separate. And in many ways, that, that the same challenges of hostility that Paul is going to use in, in these terms are the same ones that we face today. And therefore, as we read this morning, as Paul speaks to us, we might also see the kind of power and position in the way that God intends to speak into those differences and clashes and problems. So we'll pick up in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, one, verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, included from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by Christ. So Paul writes to these um, Gentiles 
speaking to them really against all of the social beliefs that they have, all of the external things that are coming around them, and even their own personal kind of uh, self-reflection actualization. He's speaking to them to, to, to tell them, in a world where you feel like you're an outsider, I want to preach to you today because of the power of the blood of Jesus, you are no longer an outsider. There's no outsiders in Christ. There's no second-class citizens in Christ. There's no, no second tiers. There's no second row. There's no XYZ people. There's no outsiders or outliers. There's only insiders by the blood of Jesus. And so he's, he's saying that if you get together in church, if you sit in the pew or if you sit at the table or if you sit in the small group, that your belonging has nothing to do with what you can offer. It has everything to do with what he's already offered you in the blood of Jesus. That the parking spot that you sit in, the seat that you're sitting in today, it's not because you're cool enough, smart enough, good enough, gifted enough, although we can feel that way because of social constructs like church, that actually that our belonging and purpose in this place has nothing to do with our social fitting in and everything to do with his blood. That's how we're here. That's why we're here. That's what we are doing here is we're answering to an invitation to the party that he's already set. And we're sitting in there because the price that is underneath your seat in the movie row theater has been covered in the blood of Jesus. That's why you're spiritually here. And I want to tell you this morning, especially for young men that are in this church, but all people in this church, that most people don't feel comfortable praying out loud. This is what I found out in ministry. It's not just youth ministry. It's all ministries that most people feel like they don't belong. Most people are sitting here in church and they're looking at people raising their hands and worship and getting involved emotionally. And most people are thinking, I don't, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like I fit. I don't think that I belong here. And although we kind of go through the motions and come here, we don't actually feel like we belong. But the blood of Jesus would say otherwise. And so we, we, we kind of live in this, in this place where, where we believe, but we don't feel like we belong. And, 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 and we try to find this, this, this place of connection. Sometimes it's a lot of times it's, it's in this big theater thing where we're trying to meet people before and after and we're saying hello and how you doing and, and connect. But, but we actually never get into the, to the family side of it. We get into the public space, but we never get into the intimate space. We never get into the sharing space. And what I want to say before I move on to the next part of the passage is that Although it seems like who says hello to us and who invites us and who reaches out to us and who texts us and who gives us the body language of respect and who quotes us and who remembers what we say and that sort of thing, although that seems like that's the currency of belonging, that's actually not the currency of belonging. I want to, I want to ask you something. I want to reflect on this question. Name me one time that Jesus, when he walked on this earth for 33 years, name me one time that he ever felt, acted, or spoke like he was an outsider of anything. The condition of shame, the fear of disconnection, the feeling like nobody knows me, nobody likes me, nobody loves me, that kind of feeling that like I don't belong, that never crossed in between the ears of Jesus because he knew where he was from, he knew where he was going, and he knew where he was. So the lie of belonging is that belonging is tethered to connection. If somebody says hello to me at the door, then I'll belong. That's not how it works. It, 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 it's not... It's not that the, the cool people, the ABC people, the, the, the insider people, because they call me, because they respect me, because you know, they see me, now all of a sudden I have value. I'm worthy of love and belonging. That's not how it works. Jesus believed and belonged wherever he was. He wouldn't allow an invitation to 
enter him or exit him from belonging because he was already in the party of the Trinity. The Trinity is the best party, the best community. The cliques that you had in middle school, the teams in football, the things that got you inside or outside, they're going to come, they're going to go, they're going, they're leaving, they're staying, but the table of Christ and fellowship will always remain. And that is the only thing that matters about where you belong. Jesus did not waste a second on feeling insecure about whether this woman would talk to him or this man would give him the time of day or this important person called me or, you know, he never called back somebody faster than somebody else because this is an important person and this is gonna get me somewhere and this is gonna get my agenda accomplished. He never had to worry about the belonging question because he belonged wherever he was to his father in heaven. This is the, this is the beginning of connection and community and that's what we're talking about today in family is to move from the lie that somebody else has authority over my belonging. That somebody else is gonna give me a seat and say hello to me and welcome me and question me in the way that's gonna make me feel safe enough that I can actually belong. If we are waiting on somebody to invite me to belong, then we will never truly belong. Christ is the only one that can buy our seat. He's the only one that can spiritually gird our feet onto a place in a family of connection and true belonging. Connection will happen. People, we do need to walk in wisdom of forgiveness and boundaries, and people will reject us as we share vulnerably, but ultimately no one can steal or give away our belonging except for us. He goes on to speak, instead of do it to the Gentiles, now he kind of softly and diplomatically preaches to the Jews. He says, for he himself is our peace, who had made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That was the discussions and dispute over circumcision and over eating rights and these types of things. Actually, it was so clicky and gossipy that Peter himself, the disciple of Jesus, when ministering to some of these Gentiles, saw Jews behind his back coming in to Antioch where they were ministering. And because he was afraid of his belonging with the Jews and his place with the Jews, Peter, or Paul said he had to rebuke Peter to his face in Antioch because he played favorites in the family of God that he actually favored the Jews over the Gentiles and he gave way to the human system rather than the kingdom system of belonging and family. And so he says there's this wall of hostility. It's so strong, it's literally pulling the apostles off of their mission by setting aside in the flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose has to, was to create in himself a new humanity out of two. And that's big, I'll get back to it. He creates a new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So what Paul's saying here is that the Jews, they were blessed as a nation. From Abraham all the way to Jesus, they were God's kind of first go-to. They were the most blessed. They were the first protected. They were the most provided for. They were kind of his favored people. The blessing was not imagined. The blessing was real, substantial, and consistent throughout time against and even in spite of other groups and systems and tribes and cultures. They were blessed. But what they forgot was not the blessing throughout the years, although sometimes they did. They didn't just forget the blessing, but the biggest thing they forgot was the purpose to the blessing. The purpose of the blessing for the Jews was never to be a better than people, but to be a blessed people that blessed other people. So the human condition in legalism that we struggle with today as well is that we accept our blessings not to bless others, but we accept our blessings so that we can be better than others. 
So if we were to pause on that and think about, let's just say the five capitals that we have in our life, much more than money, right? Let me ask you a question. As a person, as a spouse, as a family, as a friend, do the blessings that you have, do they translate into your elevation and betterment than others? Or do the blessings you have get received so that you can give and bless others? If you know something about the scriptures, is your attitude to think and show and know and talk so that others can see how much you know, or is it to help others so that they can grow? Your understanding of spiritual things, do you talk in a certain language that sort of leaves others out? Are you trying to prove something? Are you trying to show something? Are you trying to show yourself and prove your sort of self-adequacy? Or are you allowing your spiritual, supernatural, whatever it is, authority to humble yourself and give the gift so it can be received and not offended? And the relational context, you have friends, you have trust, you have equity, you're an insider somewhere. We usually take account more accurately and more first of the outsider roles that we play, but we seldom realize the kind of insider places that we hold. Because outside, being an outsider is loud and blatant, but being an insider is quiet and subtle. Do you use your social capital, your friendships, to invite others in, or do you get in together and close the door so nobody else can get in? Are your blessings for others or your blessing for yourself? Your intellectual, your strength. Do you hurt others with your strength and pose, sort of show your strength so that others can stand at a distance? Or do you use your strength to care and hold and carry people? Your intellectual strength. Are you a smarty pants? You always quoting stuff. I know the answer. I'm going to show you what I know. Or do you ask questions so you can learn what you don't know and show what others know and use your thinking to ask good questions to help others learn what you know? These are the questions we need to ask. Financial, do we give or do we take or do we invest or do we store up for ourselves? These are the questions we have to ask. And so this is what he preaches to the Jews and I think preaches to that side of us. Listen, he says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. So here's what that means. What it, what it means is that he's not taking the Jews, which this is what they believe when they're on their pew with the Gentiles next to them and their wives and all this stuff that they're afraid of. He's not taking these Jews and then telling the Gentiles, you have to become Jewish to get to Jesus. He's not saying, so, so, so he's not saying, hey, Jews, you have Jesus. Gentiles, you don't have Jesus. You've got to figure out how to get circumcised like the Jews so you can get to Jesus. You know what it says? It doesn't say that the one comes over the one so they become one. No, it says that the one both come towards a new oneness in humanity. And now, actually, he's not saying just the Gentiles need Jesus. He's saying that the Jews and the Gentiles both needed him the same way. This is what it says at the end of the passage. He came and preached peace to those who were far and those who were near. It was not that the Jews didn't need Jesus, and they were helping the Gentiles to get to Jesus. No, no, no. It's the, this, is the, this is the point. Verse 17. Everybody needs Jesus. That's the story. That's where family starts. Everybody needs Jesus. That's the only way that family can be created and sustained in a church, at a table, 
in a lunchroom, in a small group, is not you've got to be like me to get to Jesus. It's like we've got to be like Jesus to get to each other. The lie is that you've got to get to me and then we can go ahead and be to Jesus. No, the truth is that we all need Jesus and we are walking towards Jesus together. You don't have a leg up or graduated or better than anybody else at the table of God. I have kids, I got four kids, I got a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old. They're all different ages, they're all taking different steps, but, but they're all part of my family. I, I don't love one of them more than the other. And they tattle on each other and they, and they push each other and they, and they try and get legs up on one another, try and show why they're not, shouldn't be as much trouble as the other one and this one's not. But, not, but, but what they, they're learning to understand is that nothing that they're doing in terms of their activity is ever gonna change their position towards me. I love them because I love them because I love them because I love them because I love them. And under the authority of God, they need me because I'm their father as they need one another. And so we, we need to lose the mentality that as we are disciples making disciples, that somehow you have to know, you have to be like me to become like Jesus. No, no, you're, like you're gonna find this out as you get married or if you're married, you already know. You're not anyone's Holy Spirit. Your job isn't to get people to be like you. Your job is, is to minister, disciple, and care so that people can understand that Jesus is in them, not just in you. You're asking questions and facilitating and caring and invitation and challenge so that the other person is not hearing your voice, he's hearing Jesus's voice. And so there's a sermon for both. There's a sermon for the far and for the near that both of them need Jesus. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which the Spirit can live. What this is saying is that in heaven and on earth currently, that there is a table, a spiritual table of fellowship in that every bowling league and every Fortnite community and every uh, you know, CrossFit gym that we join is us trying to get to that community. That's what we're doing. We're trying to find belonging. Renee Brown says, at the end of the day, it's all about belonging. It's why we're here. It's all about connection. People don't work for money and people don't join gangs because they're making money and people don't actually study more so because of their grades. They study, they learn, they work, they play because it's where they belong. It's who has told, it, it's, it's, it's the people they belong to has told them what to believe and they're believing because of what they belong to, not, not belonging to what they believe. And so, and so the myth is, the myth is, is that somehow we're gonna break through the community barrier without Jesus and somehow find community at CrossFit without Jesus. And you might say, okay, well, there's, there, there, there's Jesus at CrossFit, right? Like there's people that I'm discipling there and there's people I'm sharing life with. And I would absolutely agree. That is part of mission. That is part of extension. That is part of kingdom. But none of the CrossFit stuff will ever replace the importance of the fellowship table at the neighborhood church. And I'm gonna tell you why. Had a friend of mine, met him in Publix. He's been out of church for a little while. There's seasons, I think, that we go through where we almost need to step out of church to know what church is. Neighborhoods, you know, boring church, you know, the giving and the communion and the worship songs and the preacher guy. You know, church, neighborhood church, what we're doing. 
like, like, like he's, he, he stops me one day, we're at Publix, and he says, why do we do the church thing, right? He's like, I've got a MacBook Pro. I've got all the apps on it. I can listen to any preacher that I want. You know, like I can have, um, I can read any book that I want. These are great preachers. They're better than you are. You know, I'm, I'm discipling my own kids. I'm taking responsibility for my faith. Like, what is it that we need? I have my small group. Like, what is it we need in the neighborhood church? And the answer to that question, hopefully you can see and know as much as it, it made me reflect and ponder on it. The answer to that question is the people in the neighborhood church, right? So I, I look back and I think of how did I get here and how do I have what I have? Here's what, here's what it is. Y'all don't know Terry Fang, but you know her through me. Terry Fang is a, a prophet, here's the word of the Lord, type of person who I met at Crossroads Community Church when I first got started. She's, I don't know, 20 years older than me. I moved a basketball hoop for her one time for her son because she donated it into youth group. And she'd been to Korea and, and all these other places and seen these house churches start. And, and, and her role in my life was to hand me this Mike Bickle book about seasons and ministry. That was her role. I, I didn't know her too, too well or too deeply. I didn't talk to her a ton, but that was her role. This is what I'm saying, is that when we're on podcast mode and we're in kind of the, I'm just gonna be me and my friends and my groups, here's what you don't have. You don't have the generations and you don't have the nations. You have an affinity group of people that you like, but it's not a church group who's making you like Christ. So here's the quote of the day. This is, this is what I want you to get today. The goal, like your, your impulse to want to be part of something bigger than you, to be part of a mission that we sometimes get in bowling leagues and CrossFit and all that stuff, and those are great things to be connected to, but your impulse will only be met at the fellowship table of Christ in his church. Fivefold, five purposes, Five gifts, the, the, the full generation, like the, the annoying part of church where you've got to go talk to people that aren't like you and deal with people that are difficult. Like, like that's the way my family table works at my house and it's the way the church works on purpose. It's, it's like, it's part of the plan because here's the quote. The goal of church is not to find people you like, it's to find people to help you become like Christ. This is the purpose is that I'm not here to find comfort. I'm here to find conformity to his likeness. And so what he's done is he's put you, it says living stones on a cornerstone, jaggedy edges up against one another, and it should feel uncomfortable because that's the way it's designed. Because you're not meant to separate from people because they're race. You're not meant to separate from people because they're annoying. You're not meant to separate from people or choose into people because they like you or they tell the same jokes than you. You're meant to dwell in and choose into spiritual spaces of family even when it's inconvenient because that's where the body of Christ resides. And what worries me is in a consumer culture or in a culture where it's easy to tap out and check out is that we kind of just kind of go to our rooms and play the spiritual iPad, so to speak. Like my thing as a dad is like my whole job is to try and find a meal that everybody can eat together, which according to Alex just needs to be chicken nuggets. That's my role is to get everybody at the table. If you're a business person, you want to sell me something, tell me something my whole family can enjoy. Because in this era and age, there is demographic studies and media and, and consumerism that anybody can go get what they want. And this is what concerns me about neighborhood churches that if you want to go and do the prophecy thing, you got to go to the prophecy church. I mean, it might not be biblical teaching. 
It might not have an evangelism side of it. It might actually like care for the poor, but it's going to get you that prophecy thing. And so it's like, I'm a prophet and I don't want to deal with all these other jagged edges and other living stones and other cornerstones. I'm going to come over here and be in my little zone in my iPad world. Or I'm the teaching church. You know, it's like, we're going to be the teaching church and we're going to teach God about the real word of God and these sorts of things. And, 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 and so we're not going to be involved with all this other stuff over here with the spirit and we're not going to do this care ministry. I mean, we're going to do the one thing the right way. I see Jesus, he's just like, can you all just come to the table at one time at the same time? Do you got to go to different places to get different meals or can the family come together as it once was to sit at the table of fellowship so I can have what I paid for? Did you know that Rose needs baby Oliver as much as baby Oliver needs Rose? She needs to learn to think outside of herself. She needs to serve. She needs to see what it's like for somebody not to be able to feed themselves. Because the purpose of her gift wasn't to make her better or separate. The purpose of her gift is so she could bring a blessing to a younger person. That's the purpose of your gift. And so I think we sit in our corners and we wonder why we're not satisfied. We wonder why it's not working. It's because we imagine a church that's meant to be about comfort and it's not about conforming to Jesus. And our gift, it just sits here. And you and me just pat each other's back about the one gift that we have. We're the, we're the real ones that really care for the poor. I mean, we, really, we really put our money where our mouth is. We're going to go over here, and we don't need the old neighborhood church. I mean, we're going to go here and do this parachurch thing. It's like, this is where, you know, my mission and my church is. That's not his plan. He's ahead with many body parts. There's many different meals. There's many different things that he's serving, and it's saying, we will always be frustrated with the nations and the generations. It's like 7,000 peace packs in the last 100 years. None of them lasted longer than two years. You know why? Because Christ isn't in them. He is the only table that draws men to himself from all nations. He's the only one that's the desire of all nations. He's the only one powerful enough, the scripture says this morning, to attack the, the deep hostility that resides in us towards one another because we are different. That you need to be like me to get to Jesus. You need to, you need to follow in my footsteps. You need to speak in my language. I don't have anything to learn from you. You only have room to learn from me. I don't need you is what Paul says. The body part, the eye could say to the foot, I don't need you. That's not the way of Christ. That's not the way of family. That's not moving us towards redemptive families that can bless our neighborhoods and bless the nations. And so there's three thoughts that I have uh, as we close to define family for us. When I use that term, it's such a diluted term. And in many ways, we need to define it, we need to own it, we need to clarify what we say when we mean it and be very careful with what we do to say that word. And for me and my family, I, I want to invite you, and Timothy is going to invite you as well, to consider a city group. People say, well, why do I need a city group? I have friends. What you don't have in friendship typically is you don't have a decided commitment to a, to a habitual rhythm. You know who my closest spiritual family is right now? Kyra, Rose, Leo, Alec, and Oliver. You know who's number two? My group and Timothy and Amy. These aren't like whiteboard things. It's not like I, I have to like answer the questions. These are, my, these are my spiritual extended family. These are the people I'm going to go to. These are the people that pray for me. These are the people at waffle parties. These are the people that I do my life with. But do you know why that's happened? You think it's just because on an accident, because me and Timothy look extremely alike and because we, uh, you know, play, we're the same age and because we go to college? No. You know why? Because we've chosen predictable patterns and rhythms. And so my, my question to you is, 
Or my challenge to you is, it's like, well, I don't need groups to make friends. Well, I would challenge you a lot of times, if you don't choose the rhythms, somebody else will choose your rhythms. And typically, it's when it's hardest and it hurts the most that the rhythms fall out of whack and we're completely on an island and isolated. So what groups are, it's not a website thing or a brand or something that you, that you do that makes things better. You can be in a part of a bad group, don't get me wrong. But the point is, is that the first step of all successful relationship is rhythm and predictable pattern. It's choosing a date night for you and your spouse. It's choosing a night and saying, if I don't put the important things first, the urgent things always win, and so I'll always be doing the urgent things and never investing in the important things. And Ephesians 2 says there's almost nothing more important outside of cultivating connection with Christ as it is to one another in the church. I'm asking you, I'm, 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 I'm suggesting to you, I'm imploring you to consider what it would mean to make it a repeatable rhythm in your life to say, I say yes to fellowship, I say no to isolation, I say yes to vulnerability, I say yes to connection, come what may. Three things that I think we might find in Jesus' family, in a kingdom family, not an not a Archie Bunker family or a home improvement family or a Brady Bunch family or, a, or, or, or any of these other families. We're talking about kingdom family, Acts 2 family, Pentecost family, family that loves on nations and neighbors, family that actually abides in the household of God, living stones. Number one, family is where your, excuse me, number one, family is where belonging is on me and not on you. The first step of family I would implore to you is, is just this understanding that before you can belong to anybody, you have to belong to Christ first. That's, that's our job. That's our job to show up. That's our job to, if we don't value ourselves and consider ourselves worthy of love and belonging, we can't teach anybody else to do any different. We can't expect somebody else to give us self-security and self-esteem. That's not their job. It will happen once in a blue moon that someone will ask you the right question and create a place of hospitality for you and serve you well and read your mind. But for the most part, most people won't. And you're finding this out. As you, as you navigate through life, you're realizing that other people will not create belonging. I am responsible for my belonging in Christ. I've got to show up. I've got to bring my heart. I've got to be authentic and vulnerable and honest and transparent. Nobody else is going to do that for me. I've got to share my story. I've got to risk rejection. I have to be vulnerable. I have to share things. If I don't create opportunities for rejection, I will not see opportunities for connection. And that's the hard part about emotions. You don't get to weed through which ones you like and which ones you don't like. No great love came without great risk. It is not enough to be loved and not known. We have to be deeply known and deeply loved, and that starts with us. We have to make a decision to show up. A lot of times I think we come in church and we just hope that we're going to walk through the doors and it's just going to make sense. But this is a public space. There's probably, what, 120 people, 150 people in this room? If you went to a Gamecocks game today, would you actually expect that you're going to share your deep and darkest secrets with 100 people around you? No, there has to be a decision to get into private space, to get into intimate space, to build into that, to choose it, to circle on the calendar, to make it a rhythm. No one's going to fight that battle for you because they can't fight that battle for you. You have to choose. Belonging is on you. Finding your seat in Christ is on you. Jesus was never intimidated or insecure about whether or not somebody called him or texted him. He belonged wherever he went. And no one could fight or win that battle for him. Number two, family is not where you are like me. Family is where we are like him. Oftentimes with marriage, you'll find out three or four years into the marriage or seven years into the marriage, you find out that there's an expectation difference. You guys know what I'm talking about with this? And what we find out at that counseling chair, you know what we find out there? Is that we got married to marriage, we didn't get married to our spouse. 
And we had this picture in this dream that it was gonna be everything that my parents didn't do and I'm gonna have the husband that I always dreamed of. He's gonna do this and he's gonna do that and she's gonna be like this and totally adore me and do all these things. And then we realized we didn't marry a marriage, we married a person. And we're mourning not the, the love of the person, we're mourning the, the death of the marriage because we actually didn't marry into a marriage, we married into a person. Like you're married to, to your person because they're your person. They're not perfect, they're a person. And you're there to love them. Death and poor, rich and, rich and sadness, all this stuff, that's what you're here for. And we do the same thing with church. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, the person who loves their dream of community, like when I say community, you're thinking, oh, you know, the cool trendy Pinterest thing with the wooden oak you know, table and all the people doing Friendsgiving. No, 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 no. That's not community. You know what community is? Weird people. And you loving weird people because you're weird. We have to lay down and put to death this concept of this utopic Acts 2 kind of community. You know, Acts 2 shows us the fruit but not the root. You know what's even a better verse to read to learn how to do community? Corinthians 13. I dare you to love people with patience, kindness, and self-control, holding no records of wrongs. I dare you to do that for a month and see how much community you create around you. And meanwhile, we have this hostess with the Moses mentality. I'm going to have my little table and my food, and everyone's going to come over and say, oh, you're so good at this, blah, blah, blah. We have this thing of hospitality, but we don't have things for people. And what he's saying is that if we, if we idolize community over Christ, we lose community and we lose Christ. Last one, family is for the nations and for the generations. Nations and generations. I think that one of the things that we fight with and contend with in the kind of millennial and baby boomer thing is this vision over what family is supposed to be. And, and the baby boomer thing, there needs to be baby in the bathwater with the idea of there needs to be authority. Ephesians 5 talks about there's husbands and wives and roles and there's a sense of, uh, what's the word? Um, complementarianism. There's a sense of like, we, we, we're different, but we're equal and we serve one another. But the 1950s household was one of the most insular, racist, closed, unmissional generations of all time. So as much as we understand that we are moving backwards towards an old format and get grabbing back hold and redeeming what authority looks like and family looks like and, and, and roles look like, we also need to lose a lot of stuff back here because back here in the 50s, we weren't doing Acts 2. We didn't have the nations. We didn't have the generations. And so I said it early in the members meeting, but the last dying vision of that was home improvement with Tim Allen, right? That season ended almost immediately afterward, they started Friends. And the idea of friendsgiving starts. No authority, no roles. Everybody's the same. We kind of date around and make out and do all this stuff. Like, we're going to have family, but we don't need the authority. And that's what this generation is looking for. It's, it's, it's beating for this thing of, like, can we do community without, without authority? Or maybe even, can we do a community without truth? You know what both of them are missing? Both of them are missing Jesus. And what tears our family is apart is saying, you have to be like me to get to Jesus. That's the attitude mindset. You have to let go of your authoritative stuff and you're too boring or you're too this or that or cut and dry and black and white and think or not feel it. You gotta be like me to understand what Jesus really, no, 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 no. Jesus is Jesus. We, we, we are all equally near and far. We're all infinitely far from Jesus. And each of us don't need to overcome the race gap or the gender gap or the political gap. We overcome the sin gap through the power of Jesus. And when we get to the table of fellowship through the blood of Jesus and belong because of the power of Jesus, now we are actually starting to do real family. Not Tim the Toolman family and not Monica and Chandler family. We're doing Jesus family. 
Kingdom family, family that, that invites the neighbors and the nations to the table, family that has a space for Rose and Leo and Alec and, Le- and Oliver. It, it's, it's a place where the family of differences can find harmony and unity that, 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 the, that the treaties could never provide for because of his blood that killed the hostility between, hostility between differences. So this is, this, this is, this is our prayer as, as we move into this group season. It's a decision first to belong to Jesus. It's coming into Jesus because of Christ, not because of comfort. It's coming into Jesus so that I might become like him and understanding that the urgent things are always going to be urgent until I put the important things first. I don't know if you want to join a city group or if you've been here for one week or three weeks or however long, but there's some tables and information out, out there. And there's also opportunities just to meet people at dinner parties. The cool thing about all this is that we're going downhill. God cares about you being in community more than you do but he cares about you being in the right community and doing it with the right posture, with the love of Christ, with the gentleness of the Holy Spirit, looking to lead and give and, 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 to, and to cherish and to bring yourself every day authentically to move from the place of being divided and fake to one-hearted and wholehearted and bringing your story so that you might actually be really known and really loved. I think that would be, that would be a treasure worth paying the price for. Let me pray for us, and Timothy's going to come up and give us some instructions. But Jesus, I thank you for uh, this community and um, the people in this room. Um, what, what we are doing in this place just by being in fellowship is preaching the blood of Jesus. And I know what you started, you'll always finish. I ask you that you continue, 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 as we set our eyes on neighborhoods and nations, that you continue to bring people far and people near, not to be like us, but to be with Jesus. We surrender our vision of what we think community should look like in the name of seeing what you say community already is. We thank you for the blood of Jesus and in the fellowship of the saints, the table of communion that draws all people together. We don't have separate stories. We have one gospel story and therefore have more in common than any CrossFit could ever bring. We love you. We seek you. We receive you in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.